It is often said of a speaker that they don't need an introduction. And in this case, our next speaker, that may be true. We all will know him, and we all take pride in being part of the same movement. We're a part of the same family. Dr. Muhammad Yunus is a Bangladeshi banker and economist. He is famous for a successful application of the concept of microcredit, the extension of small loans to entrepreneurs too poor to qualify for traditional banks. Dr. Yunus is also the founder of the Grameen Bank. Dr. Yunus first got involved in fighting poverty after observing the disastrous effects of the famine of 1974. In 1976, during his visits to the poorest households in the village of Jobra, he discovered that very small loans could make a disproportionate difference to a poor person. His first loan consisted of $27 from his own pocket, which he lent to 42 women in the village of Jobra who made bamboo furniture. Former President Bill Clinton was a vocal advocate for the awarding of the Nobel Prize to Dr. Eunice. He said, Dr. Eunice is a man who long ago should have won the Nobel Prize, and I will keep saying that until they finally give it to him. Well, in 2006, Dr. Eunice and the Green Bank were jointly awarded the Nobel Peace Prize for their efforts to create economic and social development from below. So before Dr. Eunice comes up, I want to share... uh, a personal story that I think is symbolic to who Dr. Eunice is. I think it was about 1994, I was working my first microenterprise job in uh, in inner city Washington, D.C. I was just a junior person, just new to the field, and somehow our organization, Jubilee Jobs, had secured him to come speak. Now, he wasn't quite as famous as he is now, but everyone clearly knew what a genius he had had become. So my job was to take my beat up Honda Civic to drive to the hotel and pick him up and drive him 30 minutes to the conference center and then afterwards, after the conference, drive him back to the hotel. Well, you think, here's this man who's known the world over for, for being so incredible and here, this 20-year-old guy, that he does, 20-something guy that he doesn't even know and we had this amazing conversation in this beat-up old car driving through the streets of inner-city D.C., and he was treating me like I was his equal. He was inspiring, telling the speech, similar kinds of things that we'd tell that night. And then after it was all over and all these important people had come to press the flesh and so forth, there we, we got back in the car late at night, and he kept talking, and he kept being inspiring and prophetic. And uh, I just think that's very symbolic of who he is and how everyone deserves respect, everyone deserves attention, and no one is better than another person. I count that night as the reason that I am standing here today, that I said that night, this is what I want to do with my life. Dr. Eunice, please come forward. Thank you. Thank you. I'm so glad to be here to get an opportunity to meet all of you after a long time. And when you meet after a long time, you don't know where to begin. (laughs) So I'll just uh, kind of uh, give you an update of what we are doing right now. And hopefully I'll get updates what's going on here. In Grameen Bank, we are uh, main focusing on uh, 
how to bring every household in Bangladesh, poor household in, the Bangla- in Bangladesh, within the fold of microcredit outreach. Because we have been working for the last 31 years and always trying to make sure we get to the poorest people. And we had our checklist who should be considered as uh, eligible to join Grameen Bank. So we made it as stringent as possible so that we don't miss out the people that we are really trying to work for. So we define whether the borrower, the potential borrower, lives in one room shelter or a two-room shelter. If it is two-room, you can wait. <laughs> so if, you, if all the members in the family sleep on the floor, that's okay. But if anyone sleeps on a cot or bed or whatever, then that family can wait. So, if the roof is leaky, then it's okay. But if it's a solid roof, you can wait. So that we have a long list of what, who will wait and who should get in, so that our staff know very well where to go. So that we keep doing that. But in the meantime, you know, this... Uh, Lots of debates, discussions go on that the poorest are not good for microcredit. It would be slightly above who should be aimed because people who are at the bottom level are not good for any kind of business activities. They don't have the entrepreneurial abilities. So this always went against our grain. We never thought... Even this kind of thought can come across. So about three and a half years back, after I heard this again in another conference, I started talking to my colleagues that why don't we end this debate for once for all? Let's exclusively focus on beggars. Because you can't be poorer than beggars. That's the last stage. And my colleagues were not sure what we want to do with beggars. So I said, well, we'll go with them, talk to them, find out what they do. And then uh, see what we offer to them. There are beggars who became beggars in this in her, her, her or his lifetime, how did she become a beggar? What, what point? She was pushed into begging. It's not an easy decision. So that will be something that we can learn. Then when we started learning from that, we found out some explaining that, look, my parents were beggars, so... I just grew up in a family of begging. Some said my grandparents were beggars too. 
my grandparents were beggars, my parents were beggars, and I'm a beggar. So we learned a lot in the process of just discussions, and we came up with our idea that, well, we can't do something to help you out of begging, but uh, one idea that we have, that is you go from house to house begging, beggars knock on doors in the villages, go around, pray for the family and so on, and then ask for some food or something. Usually rice, because Bangladesh is a rice-eating country, so they all they collect is rice. And if you collect, say, one kilo, two kilo of rice, you come back, cook, and feed your family. So our suggestion was, as you go from house to house, begging, would you care to carry some merchandise with you? Some cookies, some candy, some toys, whatever people like. I mean, kids love something, and you'll soon figure out what sells well. And you'll give you the money. So you're not doing any extra work. You are there anyway. So this is... (laughs) (laughs) They loved it. (laughs) Initially, they were hesitant. How do I pay you back and so on? So we said, well, we figure it out as we go along. So we thought maybe we'll have in this experimental project 2,000, 3,000 beggars to see how it works. It became so popular. (laughs) They kept coming. And our staff loved it. I thought the staff of the bank will kind of hesitate. Why this extra burden on us? But it became so popular with the staff. Initially, I said, each staff can take responsibility of one beggar only. And we have 24,000 staff. (laughs) (laughs) So that's a lot of number. But it became such an emotional issue for them. They said, no, no, not one. We We want more. So instantaneously, it was 24,000, 30,000 going. So they wanted 10 per person. I said, no way. I can make it only two. (laughs) Because it's not just taking the number. Also see what happens to them. Today, there are nearly 100,000 beggars in that program. It's an amazing experience. A typical loan, I would say about 80% of the loans is a size under $15. With $15 to a beggar, a loan, how can you go wrong? And the deal is very simple. This is interest-free loan, so you don't have to worry how long it takes you to pay back because money never grows. And make it very clear that uh, any money you make by selling things, you can use that money to pay back the bank. But never give us any money that came from begging. That's not our money. We don't want any any part of your begging money that you got it, you keep it yourself. 
we want to see how much money you make and as you can pay us back. Nearly one-tenth of these borrowers, beggars, already left begging completely. They became full business person, now salesperson. <laughs> At the beginning, many were asking, Dr. Yunus, this kind of loan, is it going to change anybody's life? Will anybody stop begging? I said, I have no idea. I'm just trying it out. <laughs> I said, at that time, there were about 8,000 beggars when this question came. I said, out of these 8,000 beggars, is one beggar stop begging on her own and becomes a dignified salesperson who takes care of her own life. I thought this would be a wonderful thing to have. And if out of 8,000, eight of them came out, after generations, nobody had helped them to get out of begging. If all I did is just lend money. I didn't give a grant or something. If that has helped her make this transition... I will feel very happy. I thought I'll, I've done a great job. Today, to seeing that one-tenth of them came out of begging, I'm amazed that it can happen just like that. And the remaining, what's happening to the nine-tenth of them? Most of them became part-time beggars. <laughs> They are in the process of closing down their begging division <laughs> and concentrate on the selling division because they are learning a lot. It's a very interesting thing that uh, how people figure all this out. If you talk to them very soon, they will explain to you their strategy. Which house is good for begging? which is good for selling. <laughs> and what time of the day is good for begging and what time is good for selling. <laughs> so to underestimate the capacity, entrepreneurial capacity of human being is such an unfortunate thing. Nobody train. We don't train them. We just let them have the money and say, well, come out. and Let them discuss among themselves who would do what and let them debate among themselves. And that's it. You got $10, you got $12. And many of them are taking repeat loans, paid back the first loan, take the second loan, third loan. So even... Just because one is a beggar doesn't mean that creative faculty of the person as a human being is lost in them. So this became our great new frontier. And I'm 
facing a most difficult time containing the spirit of our staff, who is still insisting that we should have 10 beggars per person. I'm still saying, well, well, let's see the progress. Show me the progress. Then I'll move to the next stage. Otherwise, concentrate on them, look, look after them. They become personal, emotionally attached to these beggars more than the other millions of borrowers we have. That's an amazing thing. Grameen Bank has now 7.2 million borrowers, 97% women. And as you remember that this bank is owned by the borrowers, so we have lots of owners. And that was very interesting when the Nobel Peace Prize was announced. That was a tremendous jubilation in the country, excitement that uh, Bangladesh got into the world map that uh, got such a big prize. So the whole nation felt very tall. And a few days later, Nobel Peace Committee called me up. Uh, let me explain. The prize was given... Split was, it was split in half, one half to me, another half to Grameen Bank. So the committee was asking, well, you'll come to receive the prize uh, on the ceremony, but who will come for the Grameen Bank to receive the prize? So they wanted to work out the details of the visit. So I quickly said, of course, the owners should... <laughs> So they said, uh, how many owners? <laughs> I said, seven million. <laughs> I think he lost his words. <laughs> because Norway has only four and a half million people. <laughs> so I assured him that we won't bring all seven million of them. We'll bring only the nine who are elected to be on the board of Grameen Bank as their representative. So all nine of them will come. And out of the nine, one will become the person who will come to the podium and receive the prize on behalf of all the seven million. He was a little bit reassured. that. <laughs> <laughs> so that was a tremendous kind of boost for the women in Bangladesh when this lady from remote village in Bangladesh who had no idea where Norway is, that there's a country called Norway, there's a city called Oslo or something. She stands up in front of the royalties of Norway and Spain, the king and the queen of Norway and queen of Spain, and many, many other dignitaries in front, receiving this award and making an acceptance speech. She stood up and gave a beautiful speech. She didn't stammer, she didn't got lost her voice or anything. Again, this woman would never in her wildest dream or anybody in Bangladesh ever thought 
within a few days she can transform herself to come to that position and behave in a way nobody felt she has anything lacking and the whole thing was televised globally particularly in bangladesh nationally televised everybody was stunned by seeing how she stood there and delivered her speech so again i'm referring to the inner capacity of human beings given opportunity you can rise up to that level there's nothing wrong nothing missing in any individual so today we within gramin bank and also within bangladesh what we are looking for to see how every household can be brought within the folds of financial services besides gramin bank there are many ngos who do microcredit programs in bangladesh right now 80% 80% of the poor households are within the folds of microcredit services and no other country in the world has anywhere near that level other countries you can go you can look at still would be at the highest level would be 10% 12% 15% of the poor families today is 80% in bangladesh and our goal present goal is to make it 100% by 2010 so that no family in bangladesh no poor family in bangladesh is outside the scope of the service of microcredit so that's uh, that will be one instance that uh, always i argued always i continue to plead that banking should be an inclusive system not an exclusive system that's why it was important for us to test out how do we get to the beggars because if you cannot be you cannot be inclusive if you left left out the beggars and when we were doing the begging in the beginning while our staff was excited about it some brought a very difficult question in the discussion so those who go house to house we can explain yes it's working and people find it very convenient they can take a bag take a basket and open up their ba- open up their basket and show what they have and kids love it women love it they would like to buy something and ask next time you come bring me this not this size this size <laughs> so she starts taking orders <laughs> but the question was those who don't have limbs don't go house to house sit under a tree under a shed and have a beggar's ball in front and wait for people to come by and she or he prays all day so that people pay attention and put some coins in the dish 
What do you do with them? So I said, okay. For one thing, I see that the, they select a place which is a strategic place. Get the most attention. Otherwise, you won't be hiding behind something. You are in the front and you know people see you. So this is part of their strategy. So one way we can do, why don't we discuss with them? As they beg, can they put some soft drinks, some bananas, some fruits in front of them? So people have all option, whether you throw a coin or buy a couple of bananas or have a soft drink. It should work. And really it worked. I said, if it picks up, her business or his business is doing well, selling more bananas and uh, soft drinks or other fruits. He can take the beggar's ball, put it in the back and have a cash box on the front. (laughs) (laughs) Become a business person. And you'll be happy if uh, the business grows to put a shed and uh, have a stall made out of it and that's it. Just because one doesn't have limbs doesn't mean the person is totally discarded. Still very much active. There was a story later on came in the daily in our newspapers with a picture. A person, a crippled person, selling food. And the story was he received a loan from Grameen Bank. He used to beg here. Now he has a food stall, he cooks and sells. And I didn't know about this uh, until I read it in the newspaper. The story was he used to work in a restaurant. He was a cook. But there was a blast in the kitchen. And he lost his legs and lost his job and, and didn't have anything. So after he lost everything, finally he started begging. So when this program began and uh, our staff contacted him, he said, look, I can sell food. I said, he asked, how can you sell food? You're a beggar. He said, no, I'm not a beggar, I'm a cook. I know everything about cooking. Simply nobody gives me a job. So if you give me money, I can prepare food and sell. Everybody will love it. So he's now so, feels so important that he's back to his profession rather than a beggar. So this is one of our goals to reach 100% of our families in Bangladesh. Second frontier for us is uh, children. That's our big challenge always. Uh, we, right from the beginning, many of you are familiar with our 16 decisions. One such decision is... Uh, Sending children to school. We shall send our children to school. This is a commitment every Grameen Bank borrower makes, a pledge. And as a result, we achieve 100% of the children of Grameen families going to school at a very early stage. (laughs) Then we noticed when we succeeded in making sure that 100% of the children going to school, some of those children are 
coming at the top of the class. That kind of thrilled us. These are totally illiterate families. The Grameen Bank families are totally illiterate families. The borrower, the mother doesn't read, write or anything. Never went to school. Father never went to school. There, any member of the family never went to school. Anybody in any generation above that never went to school. Coming from that family, not only went to school, now he or she is at the top of the class for the whole village where all the, all the students are studying. That is, I thought, something needs to be celebrated. So one way we started celebrating, recognizing them by giving them scholarships so that the family feels proud that my child got a scholarship, a cash money coming every month for the child. And that way recognition is made. Our book shows who are these kids so that we can follow them up, what they're doing. Today there are more than 30,000 kids who receive scholarships from Grameen Bank. And as we go... Then we see that some of these kids are in colleges, in universities. We had no idea that they will go that far. I thought we will have the primary school. That will be the greatest achievement for Grameen Bank. We have created a generation who has primary education. But seeing them getting into the higher education made up sit straight and started discussing, what do we do? Then we debated, we discussed, we got more information, and then we decided that we should give student loans so that nobody drops out because parents can't support that higher education cost. And it was stupid of us that we didn't see this before. Many people, many students probably already stopped going because nobody would support them. So without losing any time, we publicized everywhere that anybody could go into higher education, entire financing, educational cost, maintenance cost, anything they need, 100% will be covered by Grameen Bank student loan for everybody. Nobody will be rejected. Today we have over 16,000 students in medical schools, engineering schools, Many of them now graduated and become doctors, engineers, and professionals. Three of them got PhDs. Two of them are having postdoctoral work in the United States. Three of them in Japan doing PhDs. Out of those illiterate families. So we are in the midst of creating a new generation out of the old generation. So we said poverty cycle can be broken when you break the generation, generational cycle. If they continued up to their, what their parents did was a repetition of what 
their parents did and their parents did and so on. So we can't go on repeating that. We have to create a new one. So this is the new one we created. So this is where we are and uh, we hope we succeed in creating that new generation. And that will be a wonderful idea. We tell them when these students talk to us, we are finishing schools, we are doing this, but what about our jobs? Where do we find jobs? So we encourage them to do a think, think differently. So most each one of you can make a pledge like this. We shall never seek jobs from anybody. We'll create jobs. That's our challenge. Thank you very much. Let me start. Thank you. Professor Yunus has agreed to take a couple of questions. There are two mics on the floor, one to the right, one to the left. If you'd like to ask Dr. Yunus a question, please step forward now. Hi. Um, can you hear me? Yeah. Yeah, hi. Lynn Cutler from uh, Philadelphia Women's Opportunities Resource Center. Um, in the U.S., microenterprise is, even though we've been able to move it up the, uh, the level in terms of recognition, it's still not seen as a mainstream economic development strategy or as a real way of alleviating poverty. And I'm wondering if you have any thoughts of how we may be able to reframe that and get it in the U.S. to have the same sort of recognition and status as it has internationally. One idea I always try to promote everywhere, including Bangladesh, that we need some legal framework so that it becomes a legal activity. It's not something that we do in the side, nobody notices us. This is so important that everybody should notice, it should be recognized as a legal home. We do the legal thing. And one of the advantages of a legal thing is to take deposits. If we can take deposits, we don't have to worry about money from somewhere else. And that's what Grameen Bank does. Grameen Bank doesn't take any money from anybody. We have so much money, we don't know what to do with it. (laughs) That's what we tell the young people. Say, look, we are waiting with the stacks of money for you. Why should you go and look for jobs? You'll be the one who'll be giving jobs. Your mother owns a bank. And that's very important. <laughs> so, the financial part has to be resolved first, where the money should come from. Uh, in Bangladesh, we resolve by creating a wholesale fund so that we don't have to worry where to find the money. We just go walk up and take the money and give the money. It's a business. So those, you have to, I mean, uh, generally speaking, I said you have to have institutional arrangements. Individual attempt effort is fine, but when you need a bigger thing, and there I talk about creating social business. Social business I define as a business to do good to people, not to make money. 
So these are all could be designed as a social business. Non-loss, non-dividend company. People can invest in this business as an investor. And they're investing not to make money. To solve the problem, what you're seeing, that poverty, unemployment, uh, disease, uh, health, whatever. So this is another way. We have to think in terms of framework, in terms of uh, uh, way that it can function in a sustained way. Otherwise, it remains an uncertain world. So this is just a brief answer that we can talk later. Thank you. I, w- I wanted to follow up and ask you to speak. First of all, thank you for joining us. It's a wonderful honor, and thank you for coming and inspiring us today. Thank you. And I'm so glad you brought up social business. Um, I found in your acceptance speech very inspiring your vision for sort of transforming the broader economy by merging our social and economic values. And I wondered if you could talk a little about that broader vision of how our broader economic structures might be transformed in order to put poverty in a museum. The reason I was mentioning that uh, uh, somehow we uh, did a wrong thing in designing only one type of business business to make money only, nothing else. I said, human being is so much bigger than making money. Making money is an important part of human being, but this isn't the whole of human being. Whole of human being is a huge big. So my urges inside is not taken care of by business. It takes care of only one piece of my urge. There are so many urges. I'm a I'm a money-making person. At the same time, I'm a caring person. I want to be useful to the people. I want to be useful to this planet. Business doesn't take care of that. So I said that is the shortcoming of those people who design the concept of business. So now I want to say, why don't we create another concept of business parallelly? This is a profit-maximizing business. That's what you all, we all know. This The other one is doing social good to people that we will can call social business. This is the business where I put in money not to make money. I put in money to see a problem result. That's why I'm putting this money. It may be hunger. It may be poverty. It might be women, uh, abuses to women. It may be taking children out of the street. It may be drug, whatever it is. This is where investing, and there's a beautiful business plan which solves that problem. And in this social business, I can gradually take back my money. After all, it's a business, so my capital should be back to me. But I still retain the ownership of the company. But after I take back my investment money, I never get any dividend because that's not why I created this company. I created the company to do the job. And I gave an instance in that uh, speech that you referred to about a yogurt factory that we made in Bangladesh. It's a joint venture between Danone of France and Grameen. And this yogurt, we are already making this yogurt and selling, is addressed to the malnourished children of Bangladesh. There are lots and lots of millions of malnourished children in Bangladesh. Children who don't have enough to eat or not having the right kind of food, become very sick, and they have since become the attractive ground for diseases. 
So we are looking at uh, the micronutrients which is missing in those children and putting these micronutrients into this yogurt, vitamin, zinc, iron, iodine, whatever it is, and selling it to the chickens, very cheap. So now kids are eating this, love that yogurt, Danone yogurt, everybody loves it. <laughs> and hopefully this will change the health status of the children. But agreement is Danone can take back the investment they have made, but after that, no profit, no dividend. Grameen can take back the investment and no profit after that, no dividend. It is a social business. Any profit made is going to expansion and so on. We have just made one plant working beautifully and we'll go around the whole country, build 50 such plants as a social business. We have healthcare programs as a social business. So we are trying to bring this concept. And I said this concept will, has to be supported by appropriate institutions, like we'll have social stock market. This is the only stock market where we go, we will make money. That's why we open the pages to see where I can make money. Every day we are curious what's happening to the stock market because I'm worried whether my stock is going up or going down because I'm worried about my money. There'll be another stock market where this worry will not be there. We want to see how many people I'm reaching, how many poor people are getting out of poverty, which company is doing good for the babies, children, or whatever. Then I say, here is my money, I want to support this. I want to support. So social stock market will be the place where I would take care of another part of my heart, which uh, changed the world. And anybody? And I see very popular uh, support to that idea. As I go along, many people say, I would like to do that. What can I do? Tell me. And I love that idea. So this is the idea of social business. And we are creating instances. And we can join hands. We can create instances right here in the USA. Create social business. And tell people that this is what we do. And if you like it, invest it. And we go from here. Thank you. That's it. Thank you very much. That's what... Dr. Okay. Yanis, salamam alaikum. Wa alaikum salam. A little bit of a redundant question, but your exercise, your experiment, a very successful one, has two characteristics that I'm very intrigued about. One, the majority of your stockholders, shareholders, owner, owners are women. Where are the men? Number one. And number two, you are one of the poorest countries. We live, even the poorest of us, have much, much more than your people have. What do we need to do to make the shift? Do we need to teach our young? Do we need to go out into the streets? What do we need to do today in the developed countries to do what you're doing in the non-third world underdeveloped countries? Yeah. Well, that's a point I always make, that uh, whether we, reach in, we live in the rich country or the poor country, the problem is the banking services are not available to people, large number of people. We have to fill that gap. That's why I was saying 100% of the families in Bangladesh should be coming under that fold. And you say 100% of the Americans have to come to that fall. That's your challenge. Okay. That's it. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. And about, and about women, 
And when we began, wanted to make sure half the borrowers of Grameen Bank are women because the conventional banks in Bangladesh, they don't have any women borrowers. So nobody says, why 100% of your borrowers are men? Yes. Like you raised the question, why 100%? Yes, yes. <laughs> so we, ch we changed that thing. We said it can be done the other way also. Right. And when we did 50% of the borrowers women, we saw money going to the family through women brings so much benefit, more benefit to the family than money going to the family through men. So, <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. So we changed our policy. We said, let's focus on women. Thank you. Thank you very Thank much. You. Thank you.